Amen. Father, we do fully put our confidence and our hope in your work. Those of us that have trusted in you, Father, we, we've trusted in you without any type of backup. Lord, That we don't need a backup. What we have is you and you are sufficient enough. So, Father, may we respond rightly in the right response to being confident in you. The right response is worship. The right response is praise. Help us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. Well, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand in the gates, O Jerusalem. It is a joy and an honor to be here. The way David says it, there is gladness in his heart when he entered in. And I'm not sure what you came in here with this afternoon. I'm not sure if you came in here tired. I don't know what kind of week you had. Let me just lay my cards on the table that I had a somewhat chaotic week. Uh, but nevertheless, I will not let that stop me from coming in here, as David says, with gladness on my heart. God's been just too good. Has he not been good to you? He's been so good that, you know, we, we don't let our troubles and our, uh, our chaotic week give, uh, really dictate the response that we give to God. We give him worship, we give him praise, and we do so uh, with gladness. Listen, I'm going to cut out the small talk in the beginning because we really do have a lot of work, and I really am eager to preach. So grab your Bibles and meet me in the Old Testament. If you could meet me in Joshua chapter 2, uh, as you're turning there quickly, if we have any ladies that are, that are standing that need a seat, uh, please, fellas, let's, uh, let's consider, okay, I see Tashina sitting, all right. If any ladies come in and need a seat, brothers, if we could, uh, if we could give up our seats, that'd be, that'd be great. Some of y'all need to come to the, uh, the, the 130 service. We're we still working on that service, so some of y'all need to come on and, and uh, make that your service. Well, listen, as you turn there, uh, just a couple of things I, I think it's important to uh, reiterate. The Spread Love uh, campaign is uh, underway. We are trying to get as much information out. Uh, how many of you did receive the fact sheet? A few of you, okay. So there's a lot of you we don't have your email addresses for. Um, as you were heading out, as Gabe said, if you could see hospitality, they will give you the fact sheet. Uh, we are at a season where we want to make sure that everybody knows what we're doing. This capital campaign is our attempt and desire uh, to raise internal resources so that we can get a bigger space. We are sp spread out uh, three services, and there, there's a lot you lose when you're spread out. Some of y'all don't know the people that come to the first service. Some of the first service people don't know the people that are coming to the third service. And after a while, it becomes cumbersome. And so our, our desire is to uh, go deeper in community, but also to... Uh, make sure that we are really impacting this community and doing our ministry well and with excellency. And we need bigger room for the kids. I mean, sometimes them kids be packed in that small room that we have. And so uh, we, we just need more room. And so you, you guys, generosity is going to help us get there. So please check the fact sheet. It gives you why we're raising money, how much we're raising, what we're planning on doing with the money. We want to be fully transparent uh, with God's resources. Amen. Uh, second thing I'm just going to quickly say before we jump into Joshua 2 is uh, I really am eager about the, uh, the 29th when the men get together uh, to talk about casting vision for, for a godly man casting vision. And that really is holistic vision. That's not just a spiritual thing. We want to talk about what it looks like to have vision for your resources and your money, what it looks like to have vision for your family. Your, your family shouldn't be left guessing what's next. But men, we need to have vision for that. You need to have vision for your schooling. What are you doing with school? What's the vision? What's the plan? What does God want you to do 
uh, with your schooling and your relationships. We think we just get in relationships because we want to get to know somebody. And we want them to get to know us. What is the vision for it? And so we will talk about that as men. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. So please, ladies, uh, text your boo, text your man, tell them to come on out that day. And uh, text your brothers, your fathers, any man that's in your life, your coworkers. Uh, tell them that we have something going on on the 29th that's going uh, to be good. I'm looking forward to it. All right, here's what we're going to do. In the first service, I ended up, we're, we're, I'm preaching most of Joshua 2, most of the chapter. It's 21 verses. In the first service, I read all of it, and then I preached all of it, and it just was too much. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we'll dive in, and we'll read a little bit and uh, talk a little bit. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do come before you, dependent on you. We echo the words of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, where he says, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray that you would speak to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. I want to preach from the topic entitled, Our Scarlet Thread. It'll make sense in a minute. Our Scarlet Thread. In 144 AD, the church father, Marcion, uh, was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church is because he held to a heretical view, a doctrinal view called dual authorship. Dual authorship means he believed that the God of the Old Testament was vastly different than the God who divinely inspired and wrote the New Testament. He looked at the God of the Old Testament and, and concluded that he was a God that was full of anger, God that was full of wrath. And then he looked at the New Testament and he said, well, this God looks differently. He is a God of love and he is a God of mercy. And ultimately, his dual authorship position, which we would say is heretical, his dual authorship position caused him to denounce the Old Testament. He didn't live by the Old Testament. He didn't read the Old Testament. As a pastor of, in, in a Roman Catholic church, a priest, he did not even preach from the Old Testament. He only believed and embraced the New Testament. And some of you in here might be leaning towards this idea of dual authorship, that God in the Old Testament looks different than the God of the New Testament. The only problem with that logic is the passage before us. Because in the passage before us, which is an Old Testament passage, what you will quickly pick up is God's grace, is God's love, is God's mercy on a person who many in society would have deemed as unworthy of God's love. And, and that might be you in this room. You might be sitting in here and you don't feel worthy. You feel like your week last week has disqualified you. What you've done in the past has disqualified you. What we're going to get in our passage is God's grace. What we're going to get in this passage is God's mercy. Now, I think it's important for us to keep in context where we are. We parachuted into Joshua chapter 2, but we did not read uh, Deuteronomy. We did not read the book of Exodus. We didn't read Judges, which is the next book. And so sometimes when you parachute into a passage, you don't really connect it to what is going on. Well, what is going on here is Joshua is now the leader of Israel. Uh, his predecessor, Moses, has just died. And, and, and Joshua is now leading God's people, not just anywhere, He's leading them into the promised land. The only problem is the promised land, God's promised land to Israel is occupied. Other people are already in that land. And so now Joshua is putting a plan in place in order to get that land that God has promised them. Again, Moses has died, which is interesting because, you know, I always find it comical 
whenever a, a prominent leader in the scriptures dies, it's always comical to me how they die and the story keeps on moving. And it just, what it shows you is this book ain't about you. This book ain't about people. Like this is Moses. My, my spiritual father, my pastor would say, uh, Dr. Eric Mason, he would say that Moses is the big boss of the Old Testament. He, he's just, he's that dude. I mean, this is the man who literally stood at the Red Sea and, and parted the Red Sea with God's power, struck the rock and water, came out. This is the one that received the, the Ten Commandments. This is the one that watched manna fall every single morning except the seventh day. Like, this is Moses. But here's what I found out. Moses dies in Joshua chapter 1. Hear me. Chapter, um, verse number 2, he's replaced. Like, you would think we were mourning over Moses. We get a chapter that we get to see his funeral. We get to, like, Aretha Franklin. We get to get let in on what's going on in his life. We don't get anything. He dies. He gets to replace the next verse. Now Joshua is now reigning. But here's what's interesting. Joshua dies in Judges chapter 1. Verse one, and he's replaced. Watch this. The same verse. Like, like God, like this ain't about us. And I know you might be sitting there going, okay, that's because they're leaders. They're not kings. If they were a king of Israel, we would stop and get a chapter to mourn. Look at when Saul dies in First Chronicles chapter 10. He dies, David's put in place. Like the story keeps moving. Why? Because Moses, the book isn't about Moses. It's about pointing Moses towards Jesus. Joshua is not about Joshua. It's about pointing us towards Jesus. And so what we get in our text is Moses has died. He's replaced and he's replaced, I would say, with a very strong leader, the leader by the name of Joshua. Now, Joshua gives some directives. His first directive is found in verse number one. Why don't you pick me up there? It says, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Here's the first directive. Sent two men secretly into Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. The first directive that Joshua gets as a leader, the first directive that he gives is send two men into Jericho. Now, when I read this, I was like, man, was Joshua doubting the Lord? Like this is the promised land of God's people. Why would you send two spies in a land that God said, I'm giving to you? Like, are, are you picking, like, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse number 9, God goes so far as to say, wherever you go, I'll be with you. Like, if I get that type of a promise from God, I'm walking up to the door of Jericho, knocking him in like, yo, dog, y'all get your stuff out of here. Like, I'm just walking in a different level of swag if I'm Joshua. Joshua does not do that. Watch what he does. He sends two spies in. Now, we might be thinking that he's lacking confidence in the Lord, but he's not. He's actually being obedient to the word of God. Stay with me. Because Moses, when he was told the promised land is going to be yours, God says to him in Numbers chapter 13, send men to spy out the land. Joshua remembers what God says, and Joshua does, watch me, exactly what God told Moses to do. But what he does differently is when God said to Moses, send men into Jericho, he doesn't give him a count of how many men to send. So Moses sends 12. Now, here's the problem. You send 12, you're bound to get some bad reports. So he gets, he sends 12, he gets back 10 negative reports. I did the math for you. You don't even got to do the math. 84% 
of the people that came back came back with a negative report. Joshua now is in, is in leadership, and he looks at that and says, I ain't sending 12, because last time 10 of them fools came back with a bad report. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send two. I'm going to send two men in because God didn't tell me how many to send. He just said, send somebody. And so he sends men into this promised land so that they can spy out the land. Now, don't miss this in the text. How does he send them into Jericho? Look at the text. There's a word in here that we must talk about. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men, do you see this, secretly, which means that Joshua didn't make a public announcement. Now, when we think of the secrecy, we think of the secrecy in Jericho. In other words, the men are going to go into Jericho, and he doesn't want anybody in Jericho to know that they're there. That's a given. But the secrecy in the text isn't talking about that. The secrecy in the text is talking about Joshua doesn't want Israel to know that they're sending two people in. Why? Because the last time when the ten fools came back with bad, a bad report, it crippled an entire generation. An entire generation died and didn't see the promised land because of ten people. And so he says, you know what? Not only am I going to use more wisdom, I'm going to exercise wisdom and send less people. Oh, here's one more piece of wisdom. I'm not going to tell anybody just in case they come back with a bad report. It won't cripple another generation. So he sends two in, but he doesn't announce it. And that is good leadership. Good leadership wants the people that are following not to focus on the problem, but want them to focus on the problem solver. So he doesn't tell them. And, and let me just tell you, as your pastor, that, that's one of, that's one of the, the, the greatest points of leadership is to make sure that you guys keep full focus on Jesus, not on the problems surrounding our culture, surrounding this church. You, I'm just telling you, I had a rough week this week, but I am not getting up here in a therapy session to tell you about that rough week. Why? Because you don't need to let in on that. Let me bear the weight of the problems you focus on Jesus. And so what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I'm not going to send a lot of people. And if I, the two people I am sending, I'm, sitting, I'm sending in secrecy. Now, let's keep going here because there's something comical that stuck me all week. I was stuck in verse 1 and couldn't get out. It says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly and to shit them as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. This is the comical part. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Watch this. And they lodged there. Like, can you imagine this? Like, if I'm the leader of Israel, forget that. If I send Garmin and I send Dave and I say, man, y'all go do some missional work, go downtown, and they come back to me the next day and be like, Pastor, yo, you won't believe it, it was crazy. Yo, we stayed at a prostitute's house. I got problems. I got questions. Like, I'm going to have to put you on church discipline. I'm just not going to understand. But in the text, these two men go into the town, and they run across a woman whose name is Rahab, and she's a prostitute. Now, here's the crazy thing. Here's your homework. Rahab in the scriptures is mentioned eight times. Now, out of the eight times she's mentioned, six of those times, she's mentioned with a descriptive noun to her name, prostitute. Which is crazy to me, because if you read Matthew chapter 1, Rahab the prostitute is mentioned in the line of the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
Like, if Jesus does Ancestry.com, Rahab comes up. Like, consider with me that a prostitute's name is mentioned in the same passage of the family of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I go deeper? If you read Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith, all of these great men, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith Jacob, by faith Isaac, and somewhere tucked away in verse number 31 of Hebrews chapter 11, a prostitute is named. Okay, here's what it says. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here's application. Never look at someone and think they're too far from the Lord. Like nobody's nobody is unsavable. Like sometimes we look at people and we be like, man, they, they're out there. There's no way the Lord can save them. If the Lord is able to save a prostitute by the name of Rahab, he can save you. He can save whoever is in your family that you might think is too far. God is able to save you. Here we have a prostitute. We do not know how these men met her. She could have been tricking out on the corner. And God's grace comes in the form of two men, watch me, that didn't want to sleep with her. But two men that wanted to show her the power and the might of their God. A prostitute, like, don't miss this. And I don't want to run over this. I, I don't know why I'm sticking here, but, but hear me and hear me clearly. Some of you need to forgive yourself. Because when it comes to forgiveness, we always want to forgive the other person. But some of you are held bondage to your past. You are held bondage to the things that you did. And here's the thing about it. Everybody that's talking about you may not be lying. Some of it's true. But here's what I found out about the grace and the mercy of our God. It does not matter. Why? Because Romans chapter 5 says, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. It's the God we serve. And so his grace is able to reach down into a woman named Rahab, which is crazy to me. Hear me. God does not have to use Rahab to conquer the city. Like he could have made the two men invisible. They could have walked through the town invisible and came back and brought the report. He could have smote everybody with blindness in the city and they could have walked through the city, brought back a report. But God chooses to use a prostitute by the name of Rahab, which shows us he doesn't just care about the mission. He cares about the missionary. Like, don't miss this. He cares about you. A prostitute by the name of Rahab is used. And don't act like the Lord couldn't make them invisible. He parts a Red Sea and makes them walk, not on muddy land, on dry land. It's the God we serve. And so he could have made them men invisible, but he doesn't. He says, you know what? My grace is so powerful, I'm going to reach down to a prostitute that's on the corner and send two men that don't want to do business but actually want to show her the power and the might of God. Now, let's keep going in the story. Verse number two. Verse two. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. I don't know how he knew that. That, she, that they was there. It's probably because a lot of men was always in the house. It says here, the king, sent to Jer uh, sent, uh, the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come into, uh, who have entered into your house, for they have come to search out the land. I do not know how the king knows. 
I do not know how the king knows specifically that men are there and even more specific than that, how they're at Rahab's house. But the king somehow finds out. Now, what does Rahab do when the king's men get to that door? Look back at verse four. But the woman had had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them, the, uh, pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab here lies. She sends the king's men on a wild goose chase. And the crazy thing is the king doesn't even like he must be a fool because he doesn't even check the house. He doesn't check. Like you would think he would check the house and then find the men, kill the men and then kill Rahab for treason. I have I legitimately don't. But I have no time to deal with the fact that Rahab, he thought that she would have done her patriotic duty. I have no time to deal with the fact that when it comes to the will of God, we're not more patriotic than we are. Make sure we're obeying the word of God. So what we have here, I, I really don't have time to deal with that, but you feel the pieces in. You think you got to follow everything the administration says. Why? Because the Bible says the king, you know, king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like, I agree. But if you hear something and something is passed down from a political standpoint, you have a right to obey God, not, not the government. So what do you see here? She doesn't obey. She doesn't do her patriotic duty. She says, no, I'm going to hide these men. I'm going to send them on a wild goose chase so that they're looking for her. Now, what do we do with the fact that she lies? We got to do something with it. Rahab clearly lies in our text today. Now, we have one or two options. We can either be self-righteous and condemn Rahab for lying, or we can choose to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Let's see what the rest of the Bible has to say about her actions. Okay, let me pull a little bit of Bible here. James chapter 2, verse 25 says it this way. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute, here it is, also justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says it this way. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, last one. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom came to her. I don't know if you just picked up what I read, but nowhere in scripture is Rahab condemned for lying. In fact, James and the writer of Hebrews called it faith because what she was exercising, she was not being deceptive to be deceptive. She was being deceptive to, by obeying what God was telling her to do. She was being deceptive and showing faith in Israel's God. Don't, don't, don't get this twisted. Rahab wasn't a part of Israel. Like she didn't receive the Ten Commandments. She, didn't, she wasn't a part of the Red Sea parting. She wasn't there to eat the manna, but somehow she heard about it. And through hearing about it, she said, I don't know who that God is, but I got to trust him. And she acts it out by deception. Now, 
Here's why we can't judge her, because you and I do the same thing. I mean, don't, don't get self-righteous on me. About a year ago, the, the first floor right underneath of us was, uh, was empty. No, there was nobody. No tenants were in there. Now we got a Jamaican restaurant. Bless God for some jerk chicken. We've got a Jamaican restaurant that's going to be coming right un- underneath us. But a year ago, it was empty. Now, here's what the landlord did. When it was empty, when we would leave here at night, the light downstairs would be on. Nobody was there, but the light was on. Now, nobody in this church called up the, the, the company that represents this building and said, yo, y'all liars. Ain't nobody downstairs. Turn the light off. You know why you didn't call? Because when you go, when you go on vacation, you do the same thing. You leave that light on to try to ward off intruders from coming in the house. What Rahab is doing may be classified as lying, but the scriptures classify it as faith. Scripture says she, she knows about Israel's God, so she deceives the king. And one of the things I, I learned about deception in, in the art of war, and this is spiritual warfare. One of the things I learned about deception is this deception is a great tool to use and strategy to use in the art of war. And so because this is spiritual war, she uses deception. Let's look back at the text because we still haven't got to the climax of the story. We're getting there, but we have not got to the climax. Look at verse 8. Before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Please look at this. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because because of you. For the Lord, I love the confidence for the Lord, your God, he is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. Like, don't don't miss what, what Rahab is doing here. Rahab in the text is showing great confidence in Israel's God. Rahab doesn't just, she didn't hide the spies because she had faith in faith. She had faith and the object of her faith was God. And so what we see happening in the text is a great sense of knowing what God has done to Israel and saying, I got to be a part of that God. I got to trust in that God. Now, don't miss something important here. The Bible uses in, in, in uh, verse 11 and verse number 12, or actually 10 and 11, the Bible shows us a plural sense of multiple people hearing. Did, did you pick that up when I was reading it? It says, for we have heard, jump down to verse 11, as soon as we heard, our hearts melted. Do you see the plural sense? Multiple people heard about the Red Sea, but only one person responds in faith, which means You could be sitting next to somebody hearing the exact same gospel. One person responds and the other one doesn't. It's it's like for some reason we think everybody's going to respond because we're eating from the same table. Listen, I'm not a naive pastor. There's a percentage of you that will walk out of here and say that was cute, but I I ain't trusting that Jesus. There's a group of you that will do that. And I'm not afraid to say that we pray you won't. But there's a group of you that come here week in, week out, and there's no real submission in your life to the Lord. What I found out in the text is that multiple people in Jericho heard about this God, but only Rahab responds. The prostitute 
responds. Where nobody else is willing to respond, Rahab responds. I, I was preaching uh, about a year ago on Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 has three parables in it. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. And my entire goal and my theme of that sermon was how much God loves us, how far he'll go to get you. And I said, man, the woman with the lost coin had 10 coins. She loses one, meaning she still had nine, so she wasn't broke. But she wants that one coin so badly that she throws the furniture out the house lights a lamp and sweeps to find it. I said, that's how far he goes to get you. And then I looked at the, we looked at the, 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 the parable of the lost sheep. The Bible says this man has a hundred sheep. He loses one, which means he's still got 99. He's good. But he's so, like he's so loving in terms of the one, he leaves the 99 in the open field, goes after the one, and when he finds it, the Bible says he throws it on his shoulder. And he invites everyone to rejoice because that lost sheep was brought back home. And then we looked at the prodigal son, where the prodigal son takes the father's money and he goes and squanders it on reckless living. And the Bible says he's coming back. And as he's coming back, the father sees him from afar off. And the Bible says that the father goes out and embraces him and kisses him and puts a ring on his finger and puts a robe on him and kills a fatted calf and say, let's celebrate because my lost son is back home. And my entire point was God will go to full length to get you. Now, after the service, there was one guy that came up to me and I promise you he was boo-hooing crying snotting. He was crying and he was repenting and he was saying, I didn't know. I didn't grow up with a father. I didn't know God the father's love was that ferocious. I didn't know he loved me that much. I want to repent of all my sin. I want to give my life to this Jesus that you talked about. He was in full repentance, prayed with the brother, got him connected with somebody else and sent him on his way. Now, Next after him in that line was a guy that came with his Bible and says, uh, doctrinally, you weren't correct in Luke 15. Same word hit somebody else differently than it hit the man that came. What we see in the passage is that they all heard about Israel's God, but the prostitute responds. And she responds in such a way that she responds in faith. Now, here's, here's where we're at in the passage. We still haven't got to the climax. We, we still haven't got to the heart of what this passage is about. Look back with me at verse 14. Verse 14 says this, and the men said to her, this is uh, the two spies, the men said to her, our life for yours. Actually, let me go back to verse 12. And then, uh, now then, please swear by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through a window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Verse 16. And when she said to them, go into the hills and the, uh, or the pursuers will encounter you. 
and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then after you may go about your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath, with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear by. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie a scarlet cord around the window through which we, you have let us down. And you shall gather in your house your father, your mother, and your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then if anyone goes outside of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if anyone lays a hand on anyone who is within your house, his blood shall be on our heads. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us swear. Verse 21, last verse. And she said to him, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away. Underline this. And they departed and she tied a scarlet cord around her window. I'm not sure if you're picking up what is happening here. Rahab's entire household was saved because of a scarlet thread that was tied on a window. Now note something. Her mother saved. Her father saved. Her brothers are saved. Her sisters are saved if they're in the protection of the house that has the scarlet thread on it. Outside is chaos. Outside, people are getting killed because this is the promised land and Israel is coming in with a fierce army. But anybody inside the house is saved. Now, note something about her family. Her family did nothing to earn this type of favor. Her family doesn't deserve this type of favor. Her family deserves to die like everybody else on the outside of the house. But her family gets saved not because of their work, but because of Rahab's work. Okay, I don't know if you see the gospel that is oozing out of this text, but anybody in here that is trusted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you will be saved from the wrath of God no matter what chaos is outside of the house. If you're in the family, in the house of God, the scarlet thread is Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Now, now we, we got to do a little what they call typology here. We got to do some typology because in the Old Testament, stories that happen in the Old Testament always pointed to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so when I look at places like the ark, Noah's ark, and the Bible says that God looked down in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5, that every evil was set on man's heart. And then the Bible says continuously. So God looks down and the Bible says before he like he wasn't happy to do it. The Bible says it grieved God to his heart. He was moved to emotion and he sends his wrath on all of humankind. Watch this. But eight people in the family of Noah were saved. How? Because they were in the ark. What saved them from the wrath of God was that they walked through the door of the ark. Jesus does say, I am the door and anybody that comes through me will be saved. The ark was a typology of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me do one more. The Bible talks about an exodus. It talks about uh, the plagues that were sent. The last plague that was sent uh, to Egypt was the Bible says that any, everybody that, that in Israel has to go inside of their houses. And when you go inside the house, you got to prepare a sacrifice, a, a lamb. And this Passover lamb, you take the blood and you put it on the doorpost. Watch me. Anybody that was inside of the house that had blood on the door was saved from the wrath that was happening outside. 
what we have in our text is another typology because the Passover lamb points to Jesus. Now we have in the text that Rahab invites all of her family to come inside the house and they are all saved because of the scarlet thread. And the scarlet thread is a direct typology to Jesus Christ. Here's what I picked up in the text. When I look at the blood that was on the doorpost, the blood was red. When I look at the scarlet thread, scarlet means red. When I look at the thread that was on the window, the scarlet thread was red. And when I look at the blood that washes away all of my sins, the blood was red. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. There are some of you in here that have not trusted in that message. You have not trusted. You are outside of Rahab's house. And outside of Rahab's house is nothing but the wrath of God. But inside, hear me, the family will not be touched at all with the wrath of God. And those of you in here that have trusted in Jesus, you are, there is not a drop of God's wrath that will be poured out on you. Why? Because it was already poured out on Jesus. And if he pours it out on you, it's double jeopardy. He doesn't have to pour it out on you because it's already settled in Jesus Christ. I took a flight down to Richmond, Virginia. I'll end here. I took a flight down to Richmond, Virginia, and when I got to Richmond, when I was flying in and we were landing, we were flying through a crazy storm. It was crazy turbulence. I looked outside the windows, and it was rain, you know, hitting on the windows. It was a crazy storm. The plane was all shaking. We finally landed, and as we landed, I'm, I'm thanking God that we made it through and that we landed safely, but I'm like, Dag, I don't got an umbrella. I got to get out in this rain. Well, we pull up to the gate, and when we pull up to the gate, I don't know what that thing is called, that, the, the walkway that they connect to the plane. And so I walked off the plane, and I walked through the walkway, and I walked in to the airport. And as I'm getting to the airport, I'm calling the guy that's supposed to be picking me up, and, and I get outside, and the guy that picks me up pulls underneath. Richmond has a canopy. And so I'm sitting out there waiting for him, and I'm looking outside of the canopy, and it's storming, it's raining like crazy. And the guy pulls up, and I get in the car. I get in the car, we drive, you know I got to have some coffee, so we stop at Starbucks, and he gets me a, a, a coffee, no cream, no sugar, that's for punks, black. <laughs> and I, he gets me a, a coffee, he hands it to me, and I get my coffee, and then uh, we, we drive to the, the Marriott where I was staying. Now, the Marriott in Richmond also had a canopy. So he pulls underneath the canopy and he lets me out. I get inside and, and I check in and I go upstairs to my room. When I get upstairs to my room, I open the shades. And when I open the shades, it's still pouring down raining. Here's what I found out. I didn't get touched with a drop of rain and I flew through the storm. I walked through it. I rode through it and nothing touched me. And that is what it is like being in the family of God, that the wrath of God will be poured out, but you won't touch a drop of the rain. Why? Because Jesus Christ absorbed it all. He sat in the rain for you. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for you. And I know you're like, Pastor, all right already. I've heard that message over and over. And how many times are you going to say it until we get to heaven? If I preach anything else, sit me down. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. Rahab's entire family gets saved because of the scarlet thread in the window. Some of you in here are still in the street of Jericho. You're outside of the house. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let me invite the worship team up. You're outside of the, the family of God. You, you just are, and you know it. 
But some of you think that you're good because you come to church. Listen to me. The only thing that will save us on the day of judgment is that we have trusted in the work of Christ. And I'm not talking profession. I'm talking is your life submitted to the Lordship of, Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I want to pray for everybody in this room. I, I do realize, Lord, I'm not naive. There are some in here that may have hear, heard this message over and over again. Maybe their grandmother told them about the gospel. Maybe their family members told them, a friend. And they've heard this over and over again. And somewhere along the line, this message has become redundant. It's become common. But Father, I pray that you would save them today. Move people from the outside of the streets of Jericho to being inside of Rahab's house. Why? Because there is safety where the scarlet thread is. We thank you, Christ, for becoming our scarlet thread. The one who saves us, sinful people like us, from the holy wrath of God. We thank you, oh God, for Jesus Christ. I also want to pray for the one that has trusted you. The one who has submitted their life to you, there's no question they're yours. But we haven't submitted our life to this message. Even though we're inside the house, we fantasize about being outside of the house. Lord, would you help us? Would you give us direction? Would you give us clarity? Holy Spirit, move on our hearts. Help us not to be the same that we were before we met you, after we meet you. But would you not just take us from spiritual death to spiritual life, but would you take us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? This same message of the gospel that saves us is the same message that sustains us. May we never move too far from it. I thank you for those that are in your house with the scarlet thread, Jesus Christ, hanging from the window. In this case, hanging from a cross. But Lord, I pray that you would move on the hearts of those that don't know you. And they would ask somebody up here, that's singing or playing or somebody that's walking around doing hospitality, somebody that's doing community. Let them ask, how can, I, how, can I be, how can I be in the family? How can I be in the house? And may we point them directly to the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen.